Party is a Melbourne-based ag tech startup in the circular economy space. They take food waste and feed it to black soldier flies who gorge themselves on it and blow up to the proportions of William Boss weed. These flies are then turned into a sustainable insect protein used to make aqua feed, pet food, and organic fertilizer. Sound weird and a little crazy? It is, but it's also pretty cool. At their helm is co-founder and CEO Phoebe Gardner, who has earned a spot on the Australian's top 100 innovators list two years running. I like creative people, mavericks, and those who envision something and then breathe life into it. That's the Barty crew. We sat down last month in Sydney and got into it. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Phoebe Gardner, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Super excited. Yeah, no worries. Um, so I guess one place I just want to start off with for some context for the audience uh, is just, you know, a little bit of background. So walk us through at a high level what Vardy does. Yeah, so at Vardy, we transform food waste into protein and fertilizer with insects. Okay. And we do that because we're on a mission to reshape the global food system. Okay. There's a little bit of a gap between those two things. And I think what makes it make sense is when we talk about how it works. Sure. So how does the global food system work and what are you reshaping? Yeah. So we take food waste that mm -hmm. would otherwise go to landfill. Right. And like food scraps and stuff people throws out. Yeah. So food from scraps from where you might get your lunch when you're in the city at an office building, but also food scraps from food manufacturing. So most food manufacturing lines have up to 30% wastage designed in. So if you think about a frozen dim sim that you're buying at yeah. the supermarket or something like that, right? all of the pastry that's around the outside of cutting that dim sim yeah. or the end of the run when they turn the machines off, there's still mm. a bunch of meat in there. Yeah. That's designed to go to landfill. Yeah. So before it even hits your plate, there's a shitload of waste yeah. already. Yeah, so we take that food waste from all different places where right. it's being produced and we turn it into a nutri nutritionally perfect diet for a tropical fly called the black soldier fly. Okay, so the fly eats these food scraps that humans have thrown out. And then what happens? I mean, you're feeding flies. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, nope, what's next? Yeah. So we process the food waste into this ideal feed for the mm -hmm. insects. And then we dose the food waste into these high vertical stacks. Mm -hmm. And then we also dose the insect at neonate stage. So it's the size of about a grain of sand. Yeah. Yeah. And in just seven days, they're able to consume 100% of the food waste with no additional water grow their own biomass 3,000 times. and They just gorge themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And produce about one and a half times their final weight in manure at the same time. So then, okay, so you have a bunch of fat flies. Yeah. Then what? Yeah. So at that stage, they're larvae still. So they've grown from the size of a grain of sand to the size of like a jelly bean you might buy in the chemist. Yeah. And they've got all this manure and we take them out of the grow lab where we've been managing all of the environmental controls, uh, temperature, humidity, static pressure, air velocity for the seven days to get them growing. Mm -hmm. And then we separate the larvae from its manure and the manure turns into an amazing organic certified fertilizer that goes back to grow more veggies yeah and the insect themselves we take the insect clean it wash it um pasteurize and produce a 60 percent protein meal or like a flour that goes into uh pet food and animal feeds what kind of pets eat the food like dogs, dogs, dogs dogs um we've also sent insects over to the uae for falcons um, falcons yeah yeah this That's has been a bit sick a niche Niche application, but mostly dogs. We commissioned you to make falcon food. <laughs> it was a it was a distributor, so they yeah. had the relationship um, with the UAE. But, That's so interesting. Yeah. What if what a falcon, what a falcons eat? Is that different from the dog food, or is it the same type of thing? You have to make like a special product for this. Well, so do you tailor the products to the distributors, or there's like uniform uh, generic generic dog food? brand or whatever that you produce? Yeah, so because we 
because Falcons is quite a niche pet food market, we're not so much tailoring for the Falcons, but we do tailor for pet food. So the protein sources for dogs, for example, you want them to be low ash and low calcium. Mm. Whereas when we do protein for aquafeed, so feeding to salmon to make sustainable mm. fish that we can all eat, we're trying to target a specific amino acid profile mm. um, that's similar to fish meal from sort of wild fishing that's currently driving over fishing. So that's the type of ingredient we're trying to replace with what we're doing by turning this food waste into ingredients that can go back into the food system. Yeah, cool. And is there like Barty branded dog food or you sell it to uh, the, the dog food makers? Not yet, but currently what we do is we provide the main protein ingredient for pet foods right. that are using insect protein. So mm -hmm. it will be about... 30 to 40% of body's protein, making up the whole diet of the dog. Right. And then usually on the back of the pet food package, mm. you can see a like made with body logo on the back, but it's someone else's pet food brand. Interesting. And you think you and I will be able to eventually at some point eat protein bars with the fly larvae or is yeah. it not really for humans? No, totally. I mean, I've actually tried the dog food, but... Okay. <laughs> Add, add some garlic and seasoning <laughs> yeah, to it. Yeah, it's all right. No, we actually eat the insects all the time at our facility, which is called the Moon Base. So right. we fry them up. We have them in the team snacks. What do you, um, what do you like? Like, just like nuts. You just like, like oil and crumbs yeah. or something? Well, they have really amazing healthy fats in them. So we just kind of fry them or air dry them and then what? add um, like seasoning like the packets of seasoning you can buy at the supermarket, kind of just like what you would do with like if you roasted nuts or something. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, but they're not nuts; they're flat. So you just at the Barty office, people are chomping on insects. Yeah, sometimes. But, I mean, if, if you came to the facility, you could definitely try some insects. I, I would like to get down there at some yeah. point and sample them. And if you're lucky enough to come on a day that it's someone's birthday, we also use the oil from the insects to make birthday cakes. That's nice. How do you make cake out of oil? Well, I think there are heaps of like olive oil or oil recipes where you're replacing butter with oil. Ah. And so similar to that, but you can use the it's insect oil, oil we produce. Yeah. Jesus. This is so interesting. I ate dog food once, but you know, it was by accident. <laughs> um, but here you guys, I mean, you did it on purpose. <laughs> it's kind of funny. They're like, it's not, it's really cool. So, I mean, let's get into some of the numbers here, though. I don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot or make you, like, rattle off statistics. <laughs> um, but you guys offset a shitload of carbon. That's cool. I mean, that's good for the environment, I think. Yeah, um, I mean. So, what, how does, I mean, how does this work? Like, what, um, like, talk to me about the numbers a little bit. What, what are you doing that's so, that's, like, revolutionary here? Yeah, absolutely. So at Body, we have one metric that matters, which is total number of kilos of CO2 offset. Okay. And to date, we've offset more than a million kilograms of CO2. Mm. And we're, we're a young and new company, so it's super it's exciting. Yeah. yeah. And how it works is we take this food waste, and by taking on that food waste at our facility, we prevent it from going to landfill, where yeah. it would break down into methane, which is about Scientists haven't quite decided yet, but somewhere between 20 and 80 times more potent than CO2 as a greenhouse gas. Methane. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so by taking the food waste, turning it into feed, feeding it to the insects, we are producing close to zero methane emissions. The only outputs from our process are CO2 from the insects breathing, just like you and I breathe. They're yeah. breathing too as they're growing. Those bastards <laughs> breathing. Yeah. yeah, and water evaporation Yeah, and a little bit of ammonia from the fertilizer product. So okay. we're actually... But it's better than a shitload of methane. Absolutely, and we're certifying for carbon credits, so Australian certified carbon credits, mm. which is a really difficult carbon accreditation scheme to get through, mm. but a really well-regarded one. So mm. we're really excited about that and we'll be... Um, selling those carbon credits as well as receiving a tipping fee to remove that food waste from landfill and producing our two products for protein and fertilizer. Yeah, cool. That's so fascinating. Like, how did you first get interested in this space? I mean, what's the, what's the origin story here? You come from a background of architecture. Yeah, I do. I was working in architecture at the 
time immediately prior to me and my partner Alex oh. co-founding Buddy. Okay. So Alex, my co-founder, he's Buddy's CTO as well. He works in genetics and mm-hmm. had developed amazing knowledge around this very specific tropical fly from Florida. Okay. And how to breed it in an artificial environment. Like an entom- he was an entomologist? Yeah, yeah, yeah and a geneticist, entomologist, and he'd also done quite a bit of soil chemistry as well at yeah. university. And so that understanding of how to breed the fly in artificial conditions means that you can take it into this scaled environment. So at Vardy, we process up to 10 tons of food waste every eight hours at our pilot facility and that's you know five trucks every eight hours integrated farming system somewhere at this at the moon base yeah at the moon base the facility so it's eight labs and six automated manufacturing lines over 2500 square meters offsetting um what would it be up to 20 tons of co2 every eight hours now Sounds good. It's a 24-7 operation. Well, the insects aren't sleeping, so yeah. they're always happily eating because that's what they do. Yeah. But we do go home sometimes. Yeah, occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the question was how we got into it. And I founded the business with Alex, my partner, and it was that understanding of the how to breed the insect combined with the work that I was already doing on these major, amazing projects in global cities on things like train stations. Then, and yeah, so that, that's what like I'm that. interested. So what's, how do we go from architect of, you know, buildings and bridges and whatever before to architecting a, you know, vertically integrated farming system? What was like the, the leap? So, yeah, it, it was a leap. Or how did, how did you even get, so <laughs> Al, right, Alex discovered this, very particular fly, the black soldier fly mm. in Florida. And then you jumped the architecture ship, you jumped one architecture ship for another one. Or how did, um, yeah, like how did you, did, I mean, is there a lot of overlap between the two? Or how did you go from one to the other in terms of like interest? Well, I think with Alex, what we often would talk about our work at home. We were really early in our careers, just Mm. trying to work out what we really wanted out of our work lives. And so Alex and I were talking about the research he was doing and this new knowledge. And, you know, what do you do once you discover something like that? Do you publish it and move on to a different project or, and I think for Alex, he really wanted to get into the application. And for me, that's what, what I was doing. I was building these yeah. big buildings or being part of these big projects with lots of people. And I was being exposed really early to how really big things, billion-dollar projects get um, really well executed and delivered. And so we started asking the question, well, what's the application? So what? You can breed this fly in a lab. What's it really good at? What can you do with that? And this fly in particular is a a natural recycler. So it lives on forest, rainforest floors, recycling fruit that falls from the tree back into fertilizer and nutrients Mm. for the, for the forest. And we started asking the question, well, what if you did that for a whole city? We're building train stations that service a whole city. What happens if you take all the waste from a city? We weren't limiting ourselves to food waste at that time. We were like to take all the waste from a whole city and process it with um, the biology and the capability of this insect from Florida. Yeah. And we can do it because we know we can breed heaps of them in mm. an artificial environment. So we'll right. always have supply. Yeah. I was reading about in, I think it was Sweden. Um, they, this was years ago. And at my tender age, my memory is starting to slip up a little bit. <laughs> but um, they were doing something with actual waste, like trash, where they were... Something about like burning, creating fuel. I don't know, creating fuel out of the trash. Mm. Maybe could you fill in for me here? Yeah, totally. What are they doing in Sweden? There's a, there's a bunch of technologies. I mean, in Sweden, generally through Europe, and now in Australia as well, that recycle waste into sort of useful commodities or ingredients. And the UN has a hierarchy of that type of transformation, mm. and so the kind of worst waste that we have that's really difficult to salvage that's suitable for conversion into energy by burning it. Yeah. And there are particular types of 
technologies and biogases and all sorts of different um, technologies now that are able to do that. And then there's a hierarchy. So above burning something to turn it into energy sits turning it into compost or Mm -hmm. um, recycling it back into new packaging and then in the food hierarchy turning it into a high quality fertilizer that gives nutrients to grow food sits below turning it back into a food for animals and then the very top one is turning waste into food for humans to eat Mm. so you're at tier two getting to tier one yeah so we're at tier two and tier three making protein for animals to eat and tier three for creating a valuable organic fertilizer which is great and then one day we hope to do human food as well we're going through the certification process at the moment um but i think the market has a little way to go before before we're ready at least in australia yeah do you still like in your free time like read i don't know architecture books and stuff or how do you how do you unwind what do you do when you're not working on vardy i mean you're a founder it seems like you work probably quite long hours um <laughs> idea there's a there's a sign upstairs it's kind of like kitschy but it's funny it says like ideas don't respect office hours which is true i certainly don't work a nine to five um what you know what do you do when you're not working on Vardy? yeah i mean as co-founders alex and i made a really clear decision where like we have a really outsized opportunity right now to mm-hmm. build an incredible company and the more we scale body we do that by taking on more food waste and making more products and just by existing, we're offsetting CO2. So the more we do it, the better. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of our life is oriented towards uh, how can we maximize what we can build in a short period of time through body. But that being said, it's super important to, to kind of switch off. I love hanging out with our dog, Clancy, who also loves eating insects. <laughs> what, what, what kind of dog is Clancy? What? Uh, he's a Labradoodle. So, um, doesn't shed and I still do hang out with a lot of my architecture friends. Yeah. They've actually jumped in on some design projects for us at Body cool. a number of times, which has been very interesting. Hugely helpful to lean on that mm. design community to sort of pop in and out to help us solve some of our challenges. Right. Um yeah, I mean I'm interested in this overlap of you think about like design at a at a high level, you know, architecture design, user experience, all this stuff. There's like there is when you, you know, get out of, what is it? You don't lose the forest for the trees. When you get out of the trees and you look at it from a bird's eye view, there is a lot of, this is not my area. You know, that's why I like talking to people like, like you, um, is sort of just seeing like the overlap and circles between the different, uh, like the arts in general, like you look at a graphic designer, you look at a user interface, a person who designs user interfaces for, you know, apps or whatever, look at an architect, like the mode of thinking is similar. So I, I can certainly see, even if I can't understand the nitty gritty, like how your architecture background very much uh, sort of like plays into everything that you're doing now. I think there's funny ways that the architecture influence has played out at Body. I think one of the funniest things I reflect on now is that we built this factory with eight huge automated labs up to six meters high, these six manufacturing lines that are running all the time and post-processing. And we've built an amazing team of fabricators, industrial designers, geneticists, biologists from around the world, but we never hired an engineer. Right. And like, surely that has something to do with my architecture background and yeah. having to work with engineers so much before that I was like, no, 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 we're going to um, take this really design, architecture-led and biology-led approach to everything we do. Um, I don't think that'll last for every, every, forever. <laughs> we need to hire an engineer, but mm. it was. I, I still look back and I'm like, wow, I can't believe we we did that. And that has to come from something that i had the confidence and the team had the confidence that oh we can we can build this factory with no engineers right 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 and so yeah no we never hired an engineer that's fascinating that's interesting i guess you didn't you haven't needed one until now you're an engineer um yeah i mean we we kind of built a lot ourselves 
did a lot of work on the software side before mm. building in the built environment, but with a really strong understanding of exactly how we could make those two connect in a really meaningful and real way. You know, we have a different lab for different life stages of the insect and we're looking at very specific variables that we're modulating all the time. Um, and so to build that infrastructure, we really built from the sort of biology of the insect up. And one of our values is accountability to nature. And so I think of it as part of why we've been so capital efficient in building this factory really quickly within a couple of years of from being in our living rooms, having this idea is that kind of bottom up approach as opposed to, oh, we need, you can't do this unless you spend, you know, whatever X million dollars on a big building or infrastructure or whatever. We just piece our way through. Yeah. And how do you go about thinking of, you know, expansion, scaling, all the, all the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial words like you're in Melbourne right now you guys are doing cool shit down there in Victoria um and I mean it seems like it has it does have very large potential for expansion all over the place there's there's tons of cities all over the world that would benefit from this um every city in the world would benefit from this so how I mean how do you go about thinking of scale I know it's an early stage company but um what what are those some of those conversations and thoughts like look like for you guys? Yeah, well, we're just over two years in now, and at the beginning of last year we were four people. At the end of last year we were fourteen. Today we're almost halfway through the year, and we're over thirty people. Mm. We've got this first facility fully operational and up and running with semi trailer loads of product going out the door every couple of days now. And after a period of, of stealth mode, deep R&D of building out this technology first. And so now that we've done that, we are looking to, okay, what's the next step in scale for us? And it's a really interesting question. So we could spend the next period of time building out the market and building like really high value, high margin type products on the market using insect protein and insect fertilizer, or we could move really strongly in the direction of scale. And for us, that would look like building a 300 ton per day mega factory, turning food waste into this insect protein and fertilizer in seven days. Um, from sort of food waste arriving at the door to being a product out the other side seven days later. And the level of CO2 offset starts to become really significant at that mega factory scale. Okay. But also we look at our current systems and right now we're going through everything and piecing through and saying, okay, what from what we've built over the last year in particular at the current facility is scalable right. and what needs to be rethought? when you go sort of 50 times bigger. But it's not necessarily a dichotomy, right? Of like having to choose one or the other, working out all the kinks on the one hand, you're like expanding to this uh, 300, what is it, the 300s, um, this mega yeah. facility. Like, is there an in-between ground of like expanding at a rate that is, you that, I don't know, you can like work the kinks out as, as you go or, I don't know which which option are you leaning towards. You're you're weighing you're weighing both right now. I think because I come from that kind of technical background, and I love the phase of body building out the technology and building the technical team. And now I'm really enjoying building the commercial team as well. But I said before we have this one metric that matters, which is CO2 offset, and that lends itself to the maximum possible scaling as quickly as possible in terms of let's get as much food waste out of landfill as possible. Let's keep growing at the rate the technology can support. Right. And you don't want to get too big too quick. Well, it also is, is, uh, is not, not waiting necessarily to build out lots of demand at sort of high, high value in niche markets, but instead making this huge jump straight into commodities type. Mm -hmm. uh, volumes and pricing so that we can play on that global scale of setting CO2 through the commodities that are really feeding into that whole global food system that feeds us all. So if, I mean, on a commodity scale, you would be like 
importing food scraps from a bunch of different places, <laughs> like <laughs> like shipping containers full of of waste, of food waste. I think, or, or you would build different facilities in each city. Yeah, the scaling mechanism in terms of volume for for bodies definitely building a mega factory in every city. So there's ten thousand cities globally. Yeah. We'd want to have a a city. Sorry, a mega factory from Bali in every single one of those cities. That's what fully scaled looks like. But by jumping, making a big jump now between a up to ten tons every eight hours facility to a three hundred tons a day facility, we can start to play in that global commodity space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I I feel like both. I feel like, what do I know? <laughs> I've been found at a company. Um, I did found a news publication at high school, but nothing on an enormous scale. Um, I think, you know, it's an important thing for entrepreneurs to, to keep in mind is like when you're starting something like you want to, when I was starting this podcast, for example, it's like you, you can't like have everything a hundred percent of the way figured out before you start at some point, like the best time to start is now, or like the best time to start is today or whatever the fucking quote is. But the idea is like, you gotta, at some point, like you should just start doing something and like figure it out as you go and like, you know, work out the kinks as you're like going along. Um, but at the same time, I totally understand the other aspect of this is I was talking to a kid who, it's not a kid. He's, he's my age. Um, but, uh, I, I call everyone kids. Um, I was talking to this kid who he's founded this company called easy rent. Um, he's a Kiwi and they, they're trying to like disrupt the short-term rental space market. Um, and I was like, isn't there, you know, already like Airbnb, but their whole thing is, you know, like they, they, they're really good matchmakers. They vet everyone in advance and they try to match up the renter, the, the tenant to the subtenant really well. And they do the specific date, like someone like say someone is leaving Sydney and they go back to Europe or wherever they're from. Um, they like only rent out for the specific dates and find a tenant who can occupy for just like 36 days or however long it is. Anyway, that's all totally irrelevant. But the point is I was talking to him. I was like, Oh, aren't you worried about, you know, the XYZ issues. Um, and he's like, yes, but our focus right now is to just like, um, hyperscale, you know, hyper, hyper grow, grow, grow. And like some of these issues we hope will be negligible and like, we'll work, work them out along the way. And so I think both approaches have merit. Um, but I, I certainly lean towards at least in my own life, like, just fucking do it, you know, like the Nike Logan with a bit of profanity inserted in the middle. Um, keep going, keep building, always think bigger, dream bigger, 10,000 cities, you know, whatever it is, it's like, you're never going to have everything perfect worked out along, at least in my experience. And it seems like you're, I mean, that, that seems to be your, uh, thinking as well, or, or your approach towards things. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, I mean, firstly, I'd love to hear more about your news publication that you founded <laughs> at some point. But I, I'm also super keen to jump in because I think as founders, I don't think you'd ever get it off the ground unless you had a bias for action. Yeah. And I mean, for Alex and I, we um, managed to get our first 20K from a university, um, University of Melbourne, where we live. And we were like, okay, cool. With 20K, we're going to build a building. Yeah. And we did. We built a lab. Yeah. And we spent every single cent on that lab. And we hadn't worked out how to pay our rent that month. Yeah. We hadn't worked out anything at all. Um, Sleep with the flies. Sleep with the right? flies. <laughs> and, and even the whole building process, it was like, okay, well, we can't afford to build foundations, so yeah. let's lay down gravel. We need the gravel to be level so we rolled on it in the rain you know yeah. it's just like these really funny things you find yourself doing just because you're uh trying to get it done and then now when we think internally as a team at body we're always trying to optimize for learning so 
it sounds easy to say, but it looks really weird when you see it in action. Like you can walk around our facility, the moon base, and be like, wow, that is so scrappy. You'll see the scrappiest things. And then you'll see things that are super specced and totally automated and beautiful and, you know, in the way that systems that work really um, cleanly and harmoniously are, are, are beautiful. But it's because we've decided um, at this scale it's not worth solving that problem because like uh, the, the easy rent concept, I think, some problems that you face early self-solve mm. if you can solve the scaling challenges. Yeah. And, I mean, a good example for us is uh, some food waste separation. So we still do some manual food waste separation. Every single person in the body team spends at least one day every six weeks pulling trash out of the food waste that arrives in our bay on a um, picking manufacturing line. Yeah. And we know that at the you next scale. Too? Yeah. You yeah. get your hands dirty? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, at the start, it was just me and Alex and <laughs> <laughs> in the university car park, actually. What are you, what are you pulling out exactly? Like, so, like, oh, it can be anything. We actually have a, um, like, a museum of body of the funny things that we've pulled out. Of yeah, I can imagine there's some unsavory items in there. Yeah, I mean, we get star pickets, Bessa blocks, standard packaging, um, some really cool cutlery, jeans. Um, jeans? Yeah, I mean, honestly, a lot, a lot of jeans. Oh, give me a couple. I'm in, I'm in the, <laughs> the jean buying market. Yeah, yeah. So we know that we can, we know that there's some automation technology and we've built our software so that we can integrate with that in the future. Yeah. And so we know when we have the scales, when we're processing a lot more food waste and the capital will invest in a particular type of robotic automation right. that we've identified. Mm. So we're no longer looking to optimize the current, like scrappier solution that we have today. Okay. And instead we're focusing on the technology we need to build internally to body to de-risk the big jumping scale that we're about to do to that next facility. So you're doing both at the same time. You are making the leap, you know, and, you know, scaling up, but doing your best to like de-risk it at the same time. Well, well, yeah, we can do, we have a fully operational factory. And so that means we can use real operational and technical data yeah, to yeah. feed all that. Well, you're doing it every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it's the, it's the beauty of it and that in itself de-risks it, but we could easily spend a lot of time over-optimizing for the current scale That's, that we're at Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. how we avoid that and what that looks like is quite funny. That idea of walking around um, and seeing all this, these really scrappy things where we're like, no, 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 we don't need to fix that at this scale. We'll solve that at the next one through a big capex spend or through something else. And, but at this scale, there are things that we absolutely have to know that we can deliver because you know, at, we've called the next facility Rover. So at Rover, uh, there are, we're going to come up like a, after on challenges. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, we're going to come across challenges that you just can't solve. Like what do you do if 300 tons, so that's 600 plus square or cubic meters of food waste, it would probably fill the whole floor that we're in yeah. today. Um to the, from from floor to ceiling with mm. food waste. It's a lot of food waste. If the line breaks or the insects develop some preference in their diet or or whatever it is, we have we have to we have to know that we can process that because you can't shovel your way out of that amount of problem yeah. on food waste. Where whereas we used to be able to solve problems that way, you know, back when we were still at the university accelerator program. Right. No, I mean it gets into this whole conversation we were talking about earlier this whole conversation of i mean the the words you used was like over optimizing at a certain scale i think that's a good point and it, it goes back to this idea of like your i you know i i'm a, I'm a writer <laughs> i write books and i'm a journalist and when i was a teenager young tween and teen 12 13 i remember that i used to um, I would correct like spelling typos and stuff in my English essays that I was writing for middle school and high school, like 
while I was doing the essay. So I would like go back after writing every sentence and correct something that I had misspelled, which was an extremely inefficient process. The more efficient way of doing it is writing the fucking essay and then afterwards going back and correcting any typos, not like rereading every sentence and um, fixing it like as you go. There are some issues, as you said, that can be corrected for later. And that's a totally acceptable solution. So I think sometimes, or, you know, with, with, with this podcast, for example, like I wasn't on the first couple of episodes. Now it's, you know, thankful, thankfully, and hopefully it will continue to be a successful podcast. Um, but right when I was starting out and in the first couple of episodes, there was a ton of stuff that I fucked up or that, you know, you learn along the way. Oh, like, you know, this mic needs to be plugged in this way or we should use this software instead of this software. You know, we you need to set up a certain lighting or whatever. Like there's a million little things that you sort of like learn as you go and you wish you knew them earlier. But it's part of the part of the process. On the one hand. And then the other thing you said that I wanted to, um, or, or the, the, another thing that this conversation has made me think of that I wanted to dive into is like you, you're mentioning like you and Alex spend most of your time now like building, like you're like making Vardy the best company that it can be. You guys are reshaping the global food system. And like, that's the bulk of where your energy goes, understandably so. There, there have been certain nights. We used to be up on the sixth floor of this building. Now we're on the, on the, on the second floor because we switched office spaces. Um, but there were nights, you know, I was in there late. Was the only one. It was. It's a huge, like open, open plan, uh, office space with like long tables, and you have your permanent desk. But past, you know. Six seven o'clock. I was I was the only person or earlier and some days I was the only person in there, um, and I'm sitting there like typing away or editing something or finishing. I just finished my second book, so like just do whatever I was working on. I was the only one in there, and I would look outside, and it was summer nights, you know, January February, um, and you know it's it's a beautiful night. I'd like to, or I'm looking down, and you can sort of see all these buildings um with their lights on and such and i looked down outside and i thought to myself like there's nowhere else i'd rather be than in this chair right now drinking my coffee at eight o'clock in the evening and you know banging out whatever project i'm working on because you have that sense of like it's not a sense of happiness uh like day to day in the instant moment but it's like a sense of fulfillment like the greek concept of eudaimonia of feeling like you're you have a sense of purpose you know and that you're like moving the needle every day and that you know it's like i was talking to a boxer on this podcast a couple of weeks ago it's like jumping rope in the gym every day isn't fun but like you know that sucks like it's painful but um you're like working towards something and that fulfillment is i don't know that's the stuff of life, I guess. I don't know, your your comment about um, building made me think of that. I don't mean to go on for too long. <laughs> no, I think I think it's really interesting. And I was listening, and I, I could kind of draw a, a thread between the two parts. Right? It's um, the this idea that when you're a founder and it's like you're constantly taking on these new roles and basically filling the gaps and doing what the company needs and being who the company needs you to be mm. to get that to that next level of progression um, for the company or whatever milestone it is that's sitting in front of us. And within that, it's so many mistakes are made. We're learning all the time. And there's totally this urge to be like, oh, I just launched our website or um, we built a lab for the first time or we commissioned our first manufacturing line or something like that. And there's such an urge to go back and be like, wow, if I ripped that out and did it again a second time, I could do it five yeah. times faster, right. get a better outcome, get better engagement yeah. or less You needed time. to fuck it up the first time. You needed to fall forward, trip a little bit along the way. But also I think you have to, as a founder, often give up that opportunity to go back and do it again because now it's done and it's it, there's like a, a binary sense to it, the – 
the outcome is achieved, however it was achieved, whatever it took, whatever the learnings are. And now, whilst it would be um, almost self-indulgent to go back and redo it and play out those learnings in exactly that context, you have to, or at least I find I have to be willing to be like, well, actually, what does the company need from me now? The company has a website now, so it doesn't need someone who's great at launching websites anymore. Right. It needs whatever the next thing it's is. It's good enough. You yeah. Know, you get to the point of diminishing returns of like going back and, you know, editing every little nitpick of an episode or just rolling out your, for me, rolling out an episode so you have, you know, an episode to come out every week mm. or making it like perfect and sitting there fucking with the saturation or whatever. It's like, it's done. You've launched the website. Now go on you have other you know bigger fish to fry you have other shit to do the, like you've you've done it and it you know it's not like the the website's gonna like break or, or, or malfunction or something you need to fix that but like as you've said going back and doing it better faster more efficiently the second time just because you know how isn't always necessarily the most prudent use of time founders have to be like okay great now i have this skill i can deploy it maybe at some later stage but for now like lesson learned, write it down in my journal and lesson plan and then keep going. <laughs> yeah, and try to apply those learnings um, in a less literal way into whatever the next task is, but it's not always relevant. And I mean, that really comes into that kind of uh, task switching. You have to learn to be pretty good at whenever you're trying to be across a whole lot of things. But I also think it's part of what I what I love about yeah. um those moments like you're talking about where you're in the office late or early and doing some kind of deep work, at least for me, I love that those quiet moments where you're doing this deep work and it's just, I, yeah, I always feel like that's such a, such an incredible privilege to get to have such context across something yeah. like to know something so well like that like i get to know body and the people within body get to know body who are building it together and then to dive so deep in specific areas into that deep work and at least for me that's the context in which i'd ever find myself mm. um you know the last one in the office yeah th that's the time that that kind of really engaging fun kind of work deep work happens for me I was watching, um, it was a Hans Zimmer interview, the, the music composer, and he um, he was saying like, oh, I, it might have been Hans Zimmer quoting someone else, or it might have been Hans Zimmer as himself, but he's like, yeah, I get my best work done from nine to five, like nine in the evening to five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I think back to my university days of, uh, I studied history, um, in a not so distant past. Um, and there were times where, you know, like a lot of um, history work is going through like archives and reading old newspapers and shit um, and journal articles, whatever. You like read the journal article and look at someone else's bibliography, see what sources they use, take those and, you know, like try to make something new with them. Um, and I like like spreading shit out. You know, on the library desk, I would go to my little, wasn't little, like it was a cubicle with like a long-ish desk and I would spread shit out. Like, you know, have my printed 1960s newspaper clippings. I have uh, one book open like to this page with like a flashcard holding it or like, you know, other books like holding it open. Everything is spread out and I'm sitting there alone listening to the sound of rain i still listen to the sound of rain i have like 30 different rain varieties on my phone also just listen to the summer rain variety though i don't like rain on a tin roof it distracts me um anyway um the the point is i'm arriving at the point the point i guess is that um i, I buy into this idea of deep work like a lot of this jargon that people use uh, most not most of it but there's a healthy percentage of like bullshit in it of like buzzwords and whatnot um that that people throw around but i i fully when you're like sitting there fucking alone late at night and you're like in the zone um that's cool and for me like 
I don't know. I, I, I'd like to maybe get back to more of that now. I feel like I'm, I still do it sometimes, certainly like when I'm writing an article, but in life, it's important to, at least for myself, I'm just thinking out loud, like slow down as opposed to just like running from one thing to the next. It's like having that deep work is so important because as, I mean, as much as you're like dealing with other people, I imagine it's the exact same thing, you know, running a business, if not a hundred times worse for you. Like you're dealing with other people. There's so many different demands on your attention and on your time and you're being pulled in so many different directions. But sometimes like you got to just put on your noise canceling headphones and just like get down to the fucking protein. No pun intended. <laughs> and I think, um, I think we've just discovered a feature request for easy rent. <laughs> for the sound of the rain makes ah, on the roof. Yeah. For deep work. Yes. Be, uh, a part of the match between tenant and sub tenant. It, right? it, it should be exactly <laughs> like what, what the roof is made of. So yeah. we can let the rain sound. <laughs> and um, I guess, the way I now often structure my days, I'll, by the nature of it, speak to lots of customers during the day, speak to the team, have team meetings, have tactical one-on-ones um, and different types of interactions. And a lot of my function during that, like work hours, I dedicate towards unblocking other people because we have this amazing team now and I want to put them in the best possible position to do the best work of their lives. And I think at, at body on this mission together. And so if I can do even that, those like small annoying things during the day that mean that other people can just stay in flow so that they've got access to the like data or documents or yeah. whatever they need or customer information or whatever it is, I'll, I'll put that above blocking out lots of deep work for myself during the day. And I think so many people do this, right? So then you end up doing that deep work um, in the evening where it's possible to be more detailed and and also kind of executional. That's leadership though. I mean, you're, you're, that's what great leaders do is, you know, you want to make sure that your team has what they need in order to like do the shit that you've hired them to do. You surround yourself by the best people who are really good at whatever you've enlisted them to do and make sure they are, you know, if athletes were well-nourished, well-fed muscles are stretched and massaged (laughs) and you know, they're sufficiently cupped or whatever they're doing. I mean, we do do group stretches (laughs) at body. (laughs) But no, that's what I mean is like making sure the team can do their shit during the day. And, and it's, I, I like the point, you know, and then you can get into your flow state at, in the evening. I also think it's something to do with like some people are super oriented towards doing lots of work in the morning and there's a split in our team, which is counter to the common theory that startup teams map the biorhythms of their founders. We actually have a really big split, but for me at least, um, I really learned how to work hard in a sort of office context right. in architecture. Yeah. And architecture has a huge, huge trend towards late night creative work. Right. And similarly, I studied, um, I, yeah, I, I studied fine art, so sculpture and spatial practice, mm. and we had studios in sheds. Yeah. And if you were there at, late at night, you, you would have a full buzzing studio if you went at 6 a.m., less less so. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> that was pretty common, I think. It's weird how the arts work like that, right? I write at night, you know, occasionally I write with a glass of scotch. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's it's like there, there there's an old uh, quote, you have to stand alone to watch the crowd. Um, I don't know who said that, but, you know, um, I think of that sometimes when I'm writing is like looking out the window, watching the people moving it, moving around below. It's, it's not like that. I think I'm, you know, better, or higher, or, you know, whatever than them. That's, that, that's not what it means to me to stand alone, to watch the crowd. What it means is like, you know, you, you ha- sometimes you need to like take space for yourself and get in, you know, create that flow state, deep work, whatever it is so that, 
um, like when you're constantly running around with a bunch of other people, it's like you're not able to like step aside and do your shit, you know? I think the flow state too, this guy named Sheksamahili coined to that term. I couldn't possibly spell the name. Amazing. It starts with the C. It's like C-X something. Um, but Sheksamahili came up with this idea of the flow state. It's like a, a, a derivative of like the Udaman state of just being like fucking plugged in in the zone like on a hot streak if you're a basketball player like you can't you can't miss it's not that you, it's not that you can't miss you are missing and failing along the way the, the, the basketball thing is a bad example but just like plugged in in the zone in the library late at night with your book spread out or like a fucking <laughs> blueprint spread out you know designing some sick looking building um yeah i don't know I agree with what you're saying. Like I can, I can relate to it on, on a, on a junior varsity level. You're like the varsity level. No, and I, huh. I feel like it, so many people have that experience. And I mean, on the flip side, there's so much focus and data now about the importance of sleep. Mm. And I was talking to someone the other day, actually we had a, a conversation over lunch with the team where we were talking about sleep and this idea that sometimes you're just, uh, your subconscious or, or whatever's going on when you're sleeping is just processing the complexity yeah. and you wake up like so much more resolved. Right. Um, and I always sort of think that I must be smarter in my sleep <laughs> than I am when I'm awake yeah. <laughs> because of that, because that kind of um, resolution you can kind of, and clarity you can get uh, on a good night's sleep is also super important and and i mean we're learning more and more about it a bunch of people at buddy wear those um those rings now checking the, their sleep ah right yeah yeah right yeah i saw that in a tv episode like they used to have the fitbits and now that the, now they're rings and stuff yeah i don't know i don't want i don't i don't have one i try to like keep my technology i have rings but i don't have these are the old the old-fashioned kind I don't know. I could probably benefit from one, to be honest, like optimize my sleep levels. I knew a guy, I don't know if this is true, but anecdotally, I heard that he like would, he would record his lectures in, you know, uni lectures and then like play them while he was sleeping. And he thought his brain was like taking them in um, so that he didn't have to study. And he's like, that's it. That's how I learned. No, I don't know how well this worked out for said gentlemen but um i think uh i don't even know why i'm sharing that we're talking about like learning while, while we sleep <laughs> but i mean perhaps it's the perhaps the learning happens in the process of recording and managing the recording yeah and then you're just tricking yeah. yourself into thinking that oh i didn't i didn't learn anything you know i did it while i was sleeping yeah uh, if i could do that i think that would be a good superpower to choose i might remember that one well, Elon has this Neuralink now. I mean, I think it's still in the fetal stages, but like plug a flash drive into your brain and upload knowledge, that'd be fucking cool. I don't know. There's all kinds of bioethical discussions around that we don't need to get into, but like, I don't know. There's something there. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Um, Phoebe, I want to ask, um, or just like shift gears a little bit and we're we're getting to the final few questions i want to be respectful of your time um about the, the like the entrepreneurial landscape in australia um a lot of people sort of well they just they leave australia um a lot and they're like you know they 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 go somewhere else to to found their companies and there's this trope um, of tall poppy syndrome of like, no, you shouldn't go out and try to do your own thing. Um, you should like fall in line like a good soldier. Um, the idea of the, the, just for the, just explaining to the American audience, like the, the tall poppy gets chopped down. Um, have you found that to be the case in Australia or what would, I'm not Australian. I've been here like two and a half years. What, what would you say about um, like founding a company in Australia? I think it's just super powerful when there's a community that will 
I mean, startups are not just back you doing something you are super passionate about or care about. And for me, startups was, you know, happened to be that community. So I thought I'd be a architect of working professional services yeah. my whole life. My my mom's an amazing teacher and my dad's an incredible engineer. I aspired to work in professional services and be an architect and this idea um around reshaping the global food system through this insect came up and it was like, wow, there's this opportunity and this question and um, I really care about what the future looks like for all of us and future generations and so surely I owe it to maybe everyone or me or someone to give it give it a crack. Right. And we, within weeks of starting to make those types of moves had chatted to our friends who introed us into the Australian startup ecosystem. I think two weeks later we were in an accelerator program and three months after that we'd raised our first um, million dollar venture capital round backed by an incredible investor, Blackbird Ventures, and a bunch of other founders who'd founded great startups mm. in Australia had jumped in. So in that sense, that short period we were immediately swept up into the Australian ecosystem and I know that that wouldn't have happened just a couple of years prior and why not well because the Australian ecosystem was still growing and then when we came in end of 2019 early 2020 all of this infrastructure and support to gather people up that were doing stuff um like Alex and I were just on our own initially, within weeks we were introduced into this ecosystem and then that was so beneficial and we learned about venture capital for the first time and fundraising and we were able to execute on that really quickly and learn fast and, um, you know, be the, be the earlier stage founders in the room and just soak everything up from the people around us. And then pretty much immediately after that, we went into COVID. So we had this amazing introduction to the community, raised, and then we plunged into COVID and we basically just kept our heads down for right. a couple of years, building out our technology, um, doing a bit more fundraising as well. And then now we're emerging into a lot more events and the startup community being a lot more active again and it's it's really interesting because we're in a different position now we've got uh this team and we're operating and we've got product and customers and and all this stuff so in some ways i feel like we almost um like skipped that paul poppy syndrome right moment because we were uh, although we were relatively isolated we were just heads down building in our corner and looking at other Australian startup examples that were ahead of us like um, and started a bit before us and doing amazing things like Fable, Michael Fox's company, um, producing these amazing meat alternatives with mushrooms and Val doing cellular meat, um, Relectrify making batteries. And so it was the kind of few close founder connections that we made early on that mm. we were continuing to like, you know, have like one-on-one -on -one calls with or WhatsApp conversations with through that COVID period. And that's a really safe kind of founder to founder space. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there are flip sides to that COVID isolation and building a startup, but at, at least um, I think we did miss that tall poppy syndrome. And I hope, uh, I hope lots of other people get that. Well, type of just supportive experience that we did. It's good. I mean, it's good to hear because I think a lot of people look at Australian. It's an amazing, amazing country for many reasons. I chose to to relocate myself here, um, so I'm one of those people who believes that. Um, but uh, as far as founding companies and creating something new goes. The tall poppy syndrome, I think for some people, um, is like discouraging, but here you are living, breathing proof that it, you know, one needn't be discouraged. It, maybe it is perhaps slightly harder to do it here or maybe not anymore. It used to be, 
but this is as good a place as any to start a business. I mean, is it what, what would you tell some some 18, 19 year old kid who wants to start a company in Brisbane or Melbourne or Sydney or wherever they are? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's ever been a better time in history to be a founder, but whatever you can do, I, I think it's like you, in that the way that Alex and I founded Body, there were such low barriers to entry relative to even just a few years before that to anyone starting a company. And so, um, yeah, I think for me, if I think of other people starting companies, it's like, yeah, there's, there's never been a better time. There's a Australian startup ecosystem. There's investors who are backing really big ideas, lots of people willing to jump in and help. Um, and it's that whole thing of, you know, you get a lot of advice along the way and you have yeah. to um, find ways to make sure that you're kind of balancing uh, all that advice and maintaining an action bias. Yeah. But um, the less barriers to entry, I think, I think the better. So if you can start where you are um, and just test your ideas, you can do that in Australia now. Yeah, absolutely. And I was actually even down on the surf coast for an event. And so you don't even have to be in a in a major city anymore to do it either. There are amazing startup communities in places like uh, Torquay on the coast in Victoria that have workspaces called like happy, happy places. And, oh, um, I had no idea. Yeah, it, it's quite incredible. Uh, interesting. All right, last, last question here. Um, what would you say about persistence? I mean, I, you know, on the, on, on the subject of persistence, like, you know, what do you say, what do you say to the haters? Um, I feel like haters, not so much of like social media trolls, but I, I mean, like anytime you try to do anything uh, new or novel or, 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 you know, create a company there's always going to be detractors um you're always going to have maybe a bit of an internal voice in your head being like oh this is not you know uh like questioning yourself or whatever um but when i talk to people i i talk to like pretty exclusively like creative people mavericks um that's why i like talking to you um, it's so cool what you're doing so um, just, you know, is a bit of like advice for people, but also just in general, how has persistence figured into your life, your business plan, all that kind of stuff? Or what would you say on the subject of persistence? <laughs> I think it's, it's, uh, it's hard to give advice, but persistence is an like doggedly type persistence is... Yeah an amazing asset if you can cultivate it in yourself and if you have it. I mean, there's so many situations. It was quite funny. Um, sometimes people ask me, well, did you ever think of, of stopping? And I think when you have a kind of commitment it to do something and, and one of our values is live passionately, be formidable. So to be formidable, to do what you say you're going to do once you commit to that, um, the type of thinking that you have shifts. So, I mean, I can give an example. Early on, we received, we were receiving uh, four tons per week of two to four tons per week of food waste at the university campus. And it, they would tip it on a Friday night in the staff car park and we would have to process it and clear it by the Monday. And as long as we could do it, we would just get in there and process all weekend, clean it all night and be there at, you know, 5 a.m. finishing off washing down the car park so the staff could return and not really know, hopefully, how much we'd, we'd worked and, and how much we'd done in that car park during that time. And we had this one tip where the waste company tipped uh, a whole truckload of tuna and salmon heads. Yeah. And the way we processed food waste for the insects at that point was we'd take the nutritional profiles and there was the whole science to it, but also we would push it through a wood yeah. chipper from the hardware store. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and these, these tuna heads that arrived were bigger than the throat on the wood chipper. Yeah. And there wasn't, we stood there and we're looking at this pile. If we don't clean it, we're going to get kicked out of the uni and at this tiny lab we built ourselves that, you know, we'd built and we couldn't pay the rent so we yeah. could breed these insects and prove out the concept yeah. and, 
you know, so we, we had to do it. and By hand? You just chop up? How did, what did you do? <laughs> well, we actually stood around and um, Alex just said, uh, I'll go back to the hardware store. How many axes should I get? And, oh, and so we, we got axes and we cut down the tuna heads into small enough pieces. And, I mean, tunas <laughs> are huge. They're like the lions of the sea. Yeah. And they're just enormous. And you went Robespierre on them and just yeah. started <laughs> axing them down. Right? And so, we, yeah, we cut them down so that we could process them into the feed and recycle the nutrients of the um, fish offal and heads back through the insects into the food system and... Um, I mean, now we still have fish in the insect diets today, but it, I mean, it's just, there's so many examples like that where we weren't even asking ourselves, um, what if we stop? It it's was not just, an option. Yeah, yeah, it just, it wasn't you an don't, option. Well, you know, it, it's not that it's not an option. It's always an option. You can stop anytime. You just, it's not a thought that crosses mm, your mind. Mm. You don't, and, you don't consider that. And so in that way, you sort of, uh, almost don't even notice persistence. Right. As like a, you're not aspiring to persistence. Yeah, exactly. But it is the thing behind that thinking right. that enables you to just keep getting to the next step right. that you need to to keep building out the idea and seeing if it can be real and possible in the world. Yeah, absolutely. It's always there in the background, like driving, driving every, every, everything that you do. Um Anyway, thank you so much for coming on the show, Phoebe. Thank you so much. Yeah, no worries. <laughs>